Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Ladies and gentlemen, record geeks, retired plate spinners, and millennials who want to impress their parents with their record collections. Welcome to the Rhino Cast Podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Get ready for new releases, deep tracks, and conversations with your favorite artists and bands. And balloons for the kiddies. And now, your hosts with the most, Rich Mahan and Dennis the Menace. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, it's part one of executive producer John Hughes and Dennis's conversation with Debbie Gibson. Hey, Dennis. Have you become an insider yet? Absolutely. And folks, you can become an insider too. And we're talking about the new Rhino Insider Program. It is Rhino's loyalty program for music fans in the United States and District of Columbia ages 18 and over. It's free to join and you can earn points by partaking in activities and connecting with Rhino and then use those points to redeem them for rewards. And There's a lot of cool stuff you can get, Dennis. Check this out. You can redeem your points for turntables, vinyl, box sets, cool Rhino clothes, other Rhino swag, exclusive content, discounts on music. So you engage with Rhino on social media, tell Rhino what kind of music you love, read articles on rhino.com, listen to Rhino podcasts. Hello, you're already listening now. Watch videos, make purchases All of that can get you points on Rhino Insider, and it's a rewards program, and it just makes sense. You're already here, so, you know, get credit for the time you're spending on Rhino and get some free stuff, because we all like free stuff. Go to the Rhino Insider page on rhino.com, click Become a Rhino Insider. You'll get an email asking you to confirm your email address, and once that's done, you can start earning points. So, again, sign up today at rhinoinsider.com. So, Dennis, tell the folks what's on the Rhino podcast today. Well, this is going to be a surprise for everyone because Debbie Gibson, I mean, you you think pop artist, right? But you know, she is so much more than that. She's a songwriter. She's a record producer. She's an actress. She's on, I mean, she's on a current television show. She's making guest appearances. And what I learned is the level of her talent and her musicianship When you think pop artists, you just think, well, she goes in the studio, she sings. But there is so much more depth to Debbie Gibson. And this is a two-parter because we we talked for a long time. And it's myself and executive producer John Hughes at Rhino Headquarters with Debbie Gibson. How was it hanging out with her? What was she like to hang out with? She's bubbly. She's fun. And, well, I felt pretty good because she is a born and bred New Yorker. Oh, you guys must have hit it right off. Yeah, we did. And and John, 
just, of course, added the spice that he always does because he he was there listening to her music in the clubs very much at the same time that I was playing her music in the clubs. Well, all right. How about we get into that conversation that you had with Debbie Gibson along with executive producer John Hughes? Hi, everybody. Debbie Gibson here. Welcome to the Rhino Podcast. Thank you. We've been we've been trying to do this for how long now? I know it's been a while, and the good news is it's because I've had one of the craziest, most amazing career years I've had, I feel like, in decades. And I've had no free time for the past year, so it's like... That is a that's, happy reason. That's why a good happened. reason. Yeah, we um, will accept. Here that. we are now. Here we, we are will now. accept that. Okay, here we go. We were determined to make it happen. Then. Brooklyn slash Long Island meets Queens. Uh huh. So let's start with where in Brooklyn? Bensonhurst. But I only lived there till I was two. <laughs> so so, so, I don't long, so, the, so the move to Long Island. Yes. Which we have to say, Long Island. <laughs> that was at age two. Yes. So do you remember anything about Bensonhurst? Because Bensonhurst is like mafia country. I actually remember Brooklyn. I I have a very strange memory. I mean, like a strangely good memory in general of things from my childhood. So I very, very specifically remember this block party because block parties were big. And we lived in the attic of my grandparents place so like i was a third kid so my parents were up there with like the one bedroom apartment and the three kids and i remember the block party and what i remember and this was like foreshadowing of what was to come with my very tenacious personality and a bit mischievous Mm. i grabbed a hot dog from like the hot dog guy and went into the neighbor's house wandered away from my parents and was like, hi. And I was sitting at their kitchen table eating my hot dog while my parents were in a panic, did not know where I went. And when they finally found me, I was I remember the feeling and like looking at them like, what's the big deal? I just got a hot dog and came over to the neighbor's house. Like I just was very independent that way. That, that is my, my biggest memory of Brooklyn. So we're not going to go necessarily in the right order, but I want to get here really early because there's a difference between growing up in a musical family and then the story of your dad and the being a, quote, singing orphan in Far Rockaway. So yes. would, you, would you take that away a little bit? Yeah, so my dad, Daddy Joe Gibson, was put in the foster care system and spent his entire childhood in a boy's home with 100 other boys. Mm. It was really a Catholic boy's home. In fact, two different couples wanted to adopt him, and at the time they didn't let them adopt him because they were Protestant and I think Methodist because they weren't Catholic. Hmm, it was better for yeah. him to remain an orphan. I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah so kind of crazy, but that those were the times. And so he found music or music found him in this home. And one of the uh, brothers, brother Frank Springman, and by the way, I remember him so vividly because he was my friend. Mm. He was my pen pal. I remember at eight years old, writing him letters, him coming to visit, um, and he gave me this amplifier and a microphone and these things from the home that he was eventually replacing and giving away. And 
And um, so he was kind of like a grandfather figure to me. So he took my dad and three of the boys under his wing and started them singing Barbershop. And they were on Name That Tune and Joe Franklin. And I eventually won a spot on the Joe Franklin show in a talent contest. (laughs) And so I was on at like, you know, you're on at like three in the morning. That show was on like in the middle of the night. I'll bring it full circle in a minute. I tell kids like, I, you know, I've been a judge on this show, America's Most Musical Family. And when they're disappointed they didn't win, I said, listen, <laughs> the prize is you got to be on television performing in front of people. Like that literally was a prize. I won once. And it was on, you know, on a show that was on in the middle of the night. So my dad was on all of these shows and I still have 45 records that they made. And they did this incredible barbershop rendition of the Ten Commandments. What? It was like first... I must honor God, second honor his name. Boom, boom, boom. And my dad was the bass. He looked like Richie Cunningham, looked like Ron Howard as a kid, and sang bass. And, um, yeah, so I got a lot of my love of music and I think any innate vocal ability from my dad. He's a really incredible singer still. He's got this crooner's voice and he's carefree and out of his own way, which is the biggest lesson that he gave me as a vocalist because I'm very cerebral and I get in my own way and he just goes for it. He just relaxes and enjoys it. (laughs) And he's so good. remember and did that affect you early on being in a studio i remember i like i I literally i can sense memory like what like the couch and him Mm. and i just always felt at home in showbiz so even at that age like i felt at home in a tv studio I, i always loved talking about music i just that's what i remember what was school like for you then Oh, I was an outcast for sure. I mean, like eventually when I ran music camps and workshops, I just related to those kids so much because I'm like, listen, I was that freak in school. Mm -hmm. And because they they always use that word. You know, I'm such a freak. And and it's different now because I think more kids are doing music. Yeah. But like I have a nephew who does music and he eventually went, got homeschooled for a while because it can Mm -hmm. be kind of brutal for kids that are creative in school. I, I felt very misunderstood because people... People mistook the arts for, like, just a hobby. Like, they think, oh, what are you really going to do in life? And they didn't realize the dedication level that I had. And they didn't realize, like, no, I'm keeping up with what you guys are doing. Plus, I have this whole other life and Mm -hmm. this whole other vocation and focus. And so at a very young age, I was singing at the Metropolitan Opera in the Children's Chorus. And to this day, I could sing you the whole beginning of La Boheme. Because when you're eight and you're learning Italian, it stays with you forever. Mm. And the kids and the teachers would constantly make fun of me. Oh, opera. Oh, Figaro, Figaro. Oh, you think you're so great. So I actually made a school project of writing an opera called Alice in Opera Land. (laughs) And uh, it was to introduce kids to opera. And Alice stumbled upon uh, Parpignol from La Boheme. And, you know, and so, and eventually, though, the school did a field trip to come see me in Hansel and Gretel because that was a very Mm. palatable 
accessible opera for kids. And at Christmas time, Hansel and Gretel at the Met, so mm. beautiful. And they understood it more, and they were then kind of like a little bit in awe, and there was a little bit more respect. But, you know, even when I got my my first record deal, kids didn't know, like, I didn't advertise how much, like, I didn't say, well, I go home from school and I lock myself in the studio at midnight, what do you do? I mean, I just right. kept kind of, not that I kept it to myself, because kids knew I sang, and I was in the talent shows, and I was in the school shows, and they knew I was off auditioning for things and whatever, but I didn't, like, brag about it. Mm. So, you know, there was an element of, like, kids thinking I uh, that this all happened by luck, and there was a lot of jealousy, and as, you know, kids don't like when other kids get attention. And I didn't want the attention. I actually just wanted to slide into school and do my thing, mm. slide out, do my thing with music. Um, but you don't get to do that when you're a kid. <laughs> so it toughened me up and wore me out a little at the same time. Did you, ha- did you have any kind of tribe that you hung out with, though? Were there any? I did. Yeah. In fact, I'm still amazing friends. I had a get-together recently in New York with a bunch of friends and three of the people at that table, or two, let's see, my my best girlfriend, Iris, from when I was t- 12, was at that table. Ooh. Friends with her all through junior high. We went to different high schools. We remained friends. She even came and sang on tour with me. My friend, Ron Luparello, who's a New York City detective. We've been friends since <laughs> high school. Wow. I had the group of friends that was like, the guys were kind of like the basketball players. They weren't like the football player. Although Ron was a football player. Some of them were in drama club. We were kind of like the group of kids that couldn't be defined it wasn't any one like we were yeah we kind of smart and we were all kind of into the arts well I was very much into the arts but they were kind of in the kind of into sports and we were just like normal good old American kids Tell me about the Gibson girls, because your sisters (laughs) sort of kind of were in it, but you were in it to win it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they were the drama club choir kids. Like, we would even have choir rehearsals at our house. I mean, and that was more them than me. They They were in it, like, on that high school level or, like, the... You know, they were in the all-county all choir. Even I didn't make it to all-state choir like none of us did. We were right. all-county all choir. But, yeah, so they were they were in it. We would get up at the talent shows and do Matchmaker. Mm. And we four of the seven Von Trapps at one point. And, <laughs> and we always had the great family harmony blend, which I knew was special. So, like, I wanted to sing with them. But they also always knew that I was going to take the high belty note, and they wanted me to. They were like, I don't want to belt that note, Deb. You know, push me out front. <laughs> Unless he's a matchless match. You know, I was up there singing the high E or the high F. But they still wanted to do it. And 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 it's funny, like, in our town, the accompanist would see us coming, like, for a theater audition, and they'd be like, coffee break. <laughs> <laughs> I'd play for Karen, and Karen would play for Michelle, and Michelle would play for Denise. And we'd all accompany each other, and then we'd go, well, hey, we have a harmony number, too. And... Uh, but yeah, eventually they were more into the school activities, the academics. My two older sisters went to Vassar. They're very, very, very smart, way smarter than me in that way, book smart. But funny enough, like one of them's in human resources and one is um, an agent, like mainly oh, wow. for kids in New York. Oh, yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Karen Lampiasi, Lampiasi talent, <laughs> shout giving out. her a shout out and a plug. And <laughs> I love it go. because she actually 
is very similar to my mom in the sense that I don't know if she's going to like that I said that or not, but she's very nurturing to young talent. She really enjoys it. She doesn't want to be out front, but she really loves being around music. She loves supporting young people doing music. And now we've like mixed and matched. Like I'll send her people or she'll see people like, you know, the Nickelodeon show it. Hey, I'm looking for somebody that, that, that that's tight. You know, that is that type. Can you send me their info? And I love that camaraderie I have with her on that level. And then my younger sister is a fashion designer. And she was always painfully shy and hated being dragged into the uh-huh. singing. But we dragged her in. <laughs> Am I right? Let's let's do the internet test. Did you have the same piano teacher as Billy Joel? Yes, Morton Estrin. So tell me about that. That must have been... Because one of the things that people, mm-hmm. I don't want to say assume, but always go down the road about pop singers mm-hmm. is, oh, they got lucky. They had their Svengali, and, you mm-hmm. know, they didn't necessarily pay their dues, right. do the work. No, listen, listen, and we'll get to this later. As recently as three days ago, I was in my acting coach's studio working with him on a scene for a project I just did. I am a believer. You put in the work, you get the result. You don't skip steps. There is technique to all of this. It's not smoke and mirrors. I am not the most naturally gifted singer, but I work my arse off to do the best I can with what I have, and that's always been my motto. Um, But, yes, so I knew enough to know that the piano teachers I was working with were not hardcore enough. Mm. And I always enjoyed, I've gone to the therapists, the vocal teachers, the piano, that will make you cry. They will make you cry with how tough they are. And I wanted that. I wanted that. I wanted to be really good. And so when I went to the teachers, I was like, oh, and you know how you knew when you went to the recital? <laughs> you know, and it was with vocal teachers too. If everyone sounded the same at the recital, you're like, I better get out of this mm. teacher's arms quick there was a teacher i took with and again you know these i'm not going to mention names but everyone had this like ooh sound and i was like no everyone's sounding like they're imitating a sound mm. and so even when i found my and i'll get back to the piano teacher in a minute but when i found my vocal teacher in new york joan later it's because i was going to broadway shows and i was like who sounds amazing and sounds like themselves like they're speaking one minute and they're singing and it's the same voice and she works with Madonna, too. And, like, I think Madonna is such an incredible example of that. She did not try to make Madonna sound like Patti Lapone, who she also works with. Madonna sounds like the best version of Madonna possible. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what I wanted. What I wanted. So, this, so Morton Estrin is scary talented. And I was just a huge Billy Joel fan. And I said to my mom, well, who taught Billy Joel? And then she was like, let me find out. And we drove, uh, you know. The, the teacher before him was five minutes from the house, which when you're dealing with three to four kids and piano lessons is really convenient for the parents. Morton Estrin was a half hour away in Hicksville. Wow. <laughs> so we'd have to plan it where we'd all bring our homework and we'd sit through each other's lessons. And he smoked cigars and pipes like you couldn't <laughs> believe. We'd all leave there like, oh, my God, we got to wash these clothes. My point is we were in that cigar smoke like studio doing our homework you know for four hours like between 
waiting for everybody for their lessons. Plus, we'd go to music theory class on Saturday. The thing I probably trust most in my craft is my ear. Like, pretty much you could play something and I could play it back or I could transcribe it in some way. And that's because, again, it's an exor- it's a muscle, and I exercised it. I used it. I learned. I was challenged. He was amazing. So he would sit across the room in his throne. He called it his throne. It was his recliner. <laughs> and you'd be playing, and he can't even see your hands. And he'd be like, fourth bar, third note. And he had the lowest. It was like, fourth bar, <laughs> third note, C sharp, not C natural. And he'd be like, oh, how'd you know that? <laughs> As far as he was concerned, if it wasn't memorized, you didn't know it. Mm. And I'm a good sight reader, so I can pull the wool over eyes, and I could do that with my voice, too. I can trick teachers by, like, kind of making a sound, that's, but it doesn't mean it's right. So, again, I want those master technicians that know when you're really doing it. You get signed to Atlantic, which is probably a story in and of, of yes. itself. Uh-huh. But what was the strategy to roll out Debbie Gibson? Was there a strategy? Oh my it- God! If, if the first strategy was like, "Who will listen? Who will buy? Yeah. Who will buy? <laughs> Who will buy?" My mom obviously was my biggest champion, still is. Um, and she was and your manager at the time. She was my manager for twenty-five years. Right. But at the time, actually, an entertainment attorney was officially managing me. Mm. And, you know, he kind of knew how to get to Larry Asgar, Bruce Carbone, and Anthony Sanfilippo, who were the guys in the back office at Atlantic Records. The office that had no windows and stacks of 12 inches. Mm -hmm. I I loved them and love them still and communicate with them occasionally, especially Bruce and Larry. You know, I don't think initially my strategy was going the club route, but it only in my dreams felt like the first single. And then it, it, at the time, it felt like a club record. Mm-hmm. And Little Louis Vega did one of my favorite remixes of all time. And to this date, like I just worked with Tracy Young and I kept encouraging. I mean, she's brilliant. But what I, ke- I kept referencing that mix because I said, you know, I just feel like you have a chance to kind of rewrite my song. Like you have a I feel like remixes are such an opportunity to create some other musical structure for mm-hmm. the song. And Little Louis did that with Only My Dreams. And And basically, my mom and I just kept following the breadcrumb trail. We were just like, huh, the music always led the way. And I say that to this date in my career, the music will lead the way. I create it, and then then ideas all branch out from there. I wouldn't be on the Hallmark Channel if I didn't have a music career. I wasn't the best actress to ever walk the face of the earth. So everything stems from the music. And, And with that, then it was... Okay, it's a dance record. Where do people go dance? In clubs. Well, let's get me a club booking agent. Okay. And we didn't know what we were doing. And I say we, really, my mom figured it out as we went along.
So I would play a teen club, a straight mm-hmm. club, and a gay club all in the same night. Mm-hmm. And I would change costumes in the car. Right. And my mom would go in ahead of me and my two gay backup dancers mm-hmm. and my sister Karen, who's now the one who's managing kids and everything. She would do sound and light <laughs> with the reel-to-reel <laughs> backing tracks. But you were underage. I was underage. Nobody even knew. Nobody cared yeah. about my age. And I, I think, I swear I looked older then than I do now. Because I just, we made it a point to I hide my age. Too. I love that. <laughs> and I just went in the back door. Um, we joke it was like the Von Trapp family yeah. going to play like, I mean, I played crazy clubs in East L.A. where we were walked in with armed wow. men and yeah. there were metal detectors mm-hmm. and my jewelry would get stolen off my fingers as I reached into the crowd. Wow. I learned quickly not to wear rings right? to club gigs. Just, oh, but I was going to say was the gay club was always my favorite thing. The teen mm-hmm. club, you know, the teens were a little too cool for school. Right. The straight club too, like you know, oh, we're picking people up. Who's this chick singer? And and at the gay club, the people wanted to celebrate the music. I remember playing a lesbian club in Brooklyn at 16 Mm. and a bunch of sweaty women coming and (laughs) literally embracing me. Right. And I just feel like that's that's the open, diverse world I literally grew up in. And Mm. I'm so grateful for that. It was my strategy from the time I was literally I would do like street fairs in Brooklyn and like stand on an apple cart with a speaker and sing. Mm. So it was just to get experience doing it for the joy of it and to be heard. And then once I started writing music, I just became obsessed with being on. I mean, I was a radio fan. I was winning radio contests, PLJ. Mm -hmm. I won so many contests. I was a fan of the radio. I always just thought it was cool. And to this day, I like watching TV in real time. I like listening to the radio in real time because I like the idea that a bunch of people are sharing that moment at the same time. Mm -hmm. And like... I used to think of it as, wow, these people are being held hostage in their car and they must listen to my song if they're listening to the <laughs> station. Like that to me was just the be all end all. I just thought wow. if you could write a song and have people actually hear it, let alone love it, let alone be singing it across the world, learning English from mm-hmm. it, 30 something years later, still be singing. I mean, it's, that's the dream. I mean, and so that just became my obsession was for people to hear the music. The demos mm-hmm. that you originally did, and then you worked with Fred Czar. So yes. tell me, and I, I ask this of artists even today, what did you bring in and then what did he do? I love that question. My mom went and asked one of my uncles for a $10,000 loan to get me recording equipment to set up because she found me trying to multi-track record with tape recorders lined up on the Mm. ironing board. And I brought in, like, I had a Lynn rack mount sequencer and I had a drum machine. And I brought in a basic demo that really sounded like the skeleton of the record. You know, and I was very free-flowing with my idea, so I never, like... You know, you weren't like flying in a chorus at that time. Right. Like, and for people listening that might not know what that means, like today you go into a studio, and this is for the last 25 years, but you go in the studio, and if the chorus is repetitive, you sing it once, you stack the harmonies once, you tune it, you edit it, you and you only do it once, and you repeat it six times. You, you literally paste it, like mm-hmm. if anyone's just cut and paste, copy and paste. That's what you do. 
But back then, I'd go in and I'd sing the song top to bottom and ideas would change from one chorus Mm -hmm. to the next. And so Fred would wrangle all my ideas. And there might have been a song that had a... And it was just, I was playing it freehand. Well, the difference is we found a better sound and we sequenced it and it sounded... Everybody needs one of those people in their life. But he always really took such great care to keep my voice in my music. He kept the soul of the music. He kept my voice. And, like, I can't say who won our America's Most Musical Family show, but I was in the studio with this act the other day. And still to this day, I just will never forget that someone was protective over me in that way. And I want to get with artists, whether they consider themselves writers or not, I want to get them writing. I want to get their voice on the record. I don't want to say, shut up, kid. I want them to sit there with me. I want to say, well, what do you hear? And what do you feel? And do you like that note? Do you like that lyric? Do you, how would you say it? So that's what Fred did for me. He polished what I had. And he is the king of the incredibly intricate intro. So even Shake Your Love, he came up with da 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 bump, bump. That's as much of a signature. Today, yeah. he'd be considered a writer on the song. Yes, he would. You know, a lot he'd of be it, the Mark, He'd be the Ronson of the... Right, uh, the track the, guys are yeah, writers now. Yeah. Um, you know, he came up with like, Who Loves You Baby? And it was this epic intro that opened my concert. And so he refined what I did. He added to what I did all while keeping my original, like, the best of my ideas. First album had four hit singles, and Foolish Beat, this is well-known, but it made you the youngest artist, I'm going to read this, the youngest artist ever to write, produce, and perform a number one single. That's a lot of talent and confidence. It's really the confidence part. Like, it's the vision. So, like, I just believe producing is about having vision. I happen to also speak in a musical language and I had to speak in a musical language more than somebody else because I was so young and I mm-hmm. and I was female and so like I had so much more to prove so I almost had to show off and say no that's the C sharp minor seventh chord and not it like right. I had to do that because they were so ready to go well, who's this little teenage well, chick producer in the how room? did you convince Atlantic to let you produce it my mom did I just yeah. told this story yesterday to somebody because it's fun to celebrate my mom in this way now like she was this young mom of four girls and she had this one girl who loved to do music and and she was fiercely protective over my vision and because she heard those demos coming out of the garage day and night she was like this is not a mystery all it is is knowing how you want the song to sound and it's only one person's opinion. So, like, if mm. well, why wouldn't we be going with Deb's opinion? It's her song. I mean, it was kind of like as simple as that to right. her. But she had to go into the conference room with Amit and Doug Morris and mm-hmm. and all entirely men in suits. Mm-hmm. And she went in and, like, pounded her fists on the table in her Brooklyn way and said, I want my daughter to produce this particular song. Everyone constantly, by the way, was trying to bring it in... in older male writers mainly to analyze my songs and change my songs and, 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 and you could analyze any, anyone can rewrite anyone's hook, right? right? Like, but again, then it's just not their song anymore. She just fought for my vision. Yeah. 
I'm telling you, Dennis, after listening to that conversation that you and John had with Debbie, I was amazed at how much she has going on and what a dedicated artist she really is. Yeah, Rich, did you know, I mean, among the things, she was recognized by ASCAP as Songwriter of the Year along with Bruce Springsteen that same year. That's insane. Yeah, that's the point. Do not be fooled. Some pop artists are a lot deeper than you think. And you're going to learn a lot more in part two of the Rhino Podcast with John Hughes and myself talking to Debbie Gibson. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino Podcast. Executive producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Pop Cult and Rich Mahan Promotions. All rights reserved.